The care that helps you be the best you just got stronger. Healthcare Partners is now Optum, and our doctors are advancing a simple idea that your healthcare can be more personalized, more compassionate, and more convenient. Healthcare Partners is now Optum, healthcare made stronger. To learn more, visit optum.com slash California or click the ad. Optum and Optum Care are trademarks of Optum Incorporated. Wow. 
And, 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 and so what are you guys doing these days? Is the band still together? You guys still releasing music? I know we had a couple of uh, deaths uh, in, in, in the early 2000s. Um, what, what, what are you guys doing as of late? The nucleus of the group, as you just mentioned, uh, there's been a lot of changes. Of course, we lost uh, the bass player, Mark Adams, and six months later, um, Drax, the lead guitarist who played the solo on slide, he also passed. So the group Slave will never be what it was when you lose two members like that. Right. But um, a few years back, there was a, a nucleus of myself and Danny Webster, the uh, rhythm guitar player, lead vocalist, Floyd Miller, the trombone player, and um, a guy who came in on the third album, Charles Cedell Carter, and went on to co-produce and co-write with Steve Arrington's albums. He did the show, and we had a great time. It was in Akron, Ohio. And what we realized at that point was is that we still had what it took to bring the slave vibe back, but as many groups uh, who have been a part realize that, uh, you know, when you get older, it's about more than just the music. It's about... Uh, creative differences. It's about lifestyle changes. Um, me and Charles Tito Carter, we are still working on a project together as we speak. Um, and the group has also been going through some legal situations with the record company. So things have been kind of strange. Oh, really? things are, oh yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, we hear a lot of that on, on, on uh, you already hear first uh, from different acts that, you know, just come right out and tell us that it's not as rosy as it looks, um, you know, on the business end. Give us an example of, uh, of some of the stuff that uh, you've had to kind of wade through on the legal end. And, and before you start, I, I do want to say um, for everybody's edification, you know, we have quite a few music business aficionados listening uh, in our 12 million Listeners, uh, 166 countries around the world and 500 cities across the United States of America. A lot of people in the business that pick up uh, what you veterans say. So uh, for the sake of education and hopefully um, circumvention of bad situations and experiences happening to new people, uh, you know, getting in the game, what happened the biggest thing that happened with uh, Slave, and as you alluded to, we were 17, 18, and 19 years old when we recorded the record. Actually, Mark Adams was technically 16 years old when he played Fly. Wow. So we were very, very young. We were very young. Um, in that, when it was time to... Uh, sign the contracts. I, I will not say that we were led wrong. We signed a um, atypical first year agreement with Atlantic Records. Cotillion was the record label at the time that had um, Luther on it with the group. Beginning. Um, 
what happened was, you know, Slide comes out February 1977, the same month that Roots, the movie, came out. There were a lot of people who thought that it was planned or whatever. No, it was just um, God's way of, of, of smiling down that Roots came out February 1977 and Slide was released by a young group called Slaves the same month. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Everything was okay. Our uh, original manager's name was Jeff Dixon. Jeff Dixon was a program director for a New Jersey radio station, WNJR at the time. So he had relationships with various record labels and Cotillion was one of those. So Jeff um, made uh, contact, actually the leader of our group at the time, Steve Washington, contacted Jeff. They had had previous things going on, you know, you know, neighborhood shows, so forth. So Steve, you know, brought us up to New Jersey at one point. We did an outdoor concert. Uh, and Jeff saw something in us. So he invested some money. At the time, it was $14,000. We went back up to New Jersey. We never came together as a group to just play clubs. Steve Washington at the time was living with Ralph Pee Wee Middlebrooks, who was the trumpet player for the Ohio Players. He was living with him at the time that I met him. So our concept was not to be a club band. We, from day one, worked on original material. So when we went to New Jersey, we had rehearsed and wrote upwards of eight, nine different songs. But ironically, at the time that we went to record, Slide had not been created. The day before we went to the studio, while jamming in Steve Washington's mom's living room, Slide came um, over maybe one bottle of bourbon. (laughs) 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 And um, we knew immediately that that was the type of track that could uh, bring us the type of success that we were looking for. So if you listen to Slide, you always feel like it's a jam, so forth. Well, in essence, um, the drums, the bass, the rhythm guitar, and the solo was one take. The first take, that's the first thing that we did when we got to the studio. It was one take. There were no overdubs. It was one take. Of course, we came back and we put the horns on it and vocals. But the reason why Slide feels the way that it feels is because it was a one-take track. So, after that, you know, we finished This is in Sayreville, New Jersey. Uh, Jeff Dixon had the song, I mean, the uh, album mix. Uh, I can't he had it mastered, but he took it over to Henry Allen. And, of course, the song that he played, Henry Allen, who was the president at the time of Slide, deal was done. They wanted the group. 
It took about six months of negotiations to get everything done. In the meantime, myself, one or two other members graduated from high school. You know, so the time is, you know, ironic. Um, to this final tour, slave, um, toured with groups like the Commodores, uh, Average White Band, uh, Wild Cherry. As a matter of fact, in, I think it was Pittsburgh, it was Average White Band was the headliner slave and wild cherry. Now you know that was <laughs> yeah, that, that was a big party. That's a yeah. big party. The whole bunch yeah. of people yeah. Oh yeah. So we toured the album single went gold. We received our gold album at Medicine Square Garden we were performing at Katie Grass and the Ozzy Brothers were awarded our vote that night. Had a big team day. Oh, that was great. We toured that first year out. And keep in mind, this is 1977. The group, we grossed for what we received right around $600,000, which sounds like a nice piece of change. Because it was actually, mm-hmm. I would say, a eight-month period of actual what was the eight months between all y'all there's $600,000 that go ahead with the story. Yeah. Listen up, y'all. You're already here for Listen up. The problem is we spent about 700000 Okay. And, you know, that's why groups today there are very few groups, most artists, which makes sense. Our single artists, you know, you got Trey Song, T.I. Rappers, you know, it's usually single artists. They will network with other artists on albums, but each artist normally is one person, maybe the most two. You know, you have a few groups that will come out uh, as far as more than one or two people, but for the most part, they have single artists. So what's ironic? I'm sorry, go ahead. For just to give us more of a purchase and nobody knows or anybody else is doing they just know the money you should be able to have what we because we're celebrities now. What happened to y'all? Did you get up to you realize wait a minute, you made six hundred thousand dollars you're on the hook seven hundred thousand. And what happens what kind of money y'all got coming in because y'all you find out that this is what time it is this month, right? Feedback. Right. Well, so first of all, you know, we purchased equipment. We didn't really spend a great deal of money at first on equipment. So everybody needed everybody, um, but quite a few needed upgrades as far as individual instruments. So, you know, Mark the bass player, I think uh, he had two or three basses. He got a backer. He got another jazz. Um, uh, I got a new sax, trombone. I got a new trombone. Um, just basic amps. Where the expenses came in. Oh well, let me. While I'm talking about personal expenses, of course we all went to uh, a few clothing stores because 
we needed proper clothes were on stage. And at the time, you know, our idols were uh, Doris Clinton, Austin Funkadelic, uh, the Ohio Players, you know, groups that, you know, era. So where do, so where do y'all have to go to get those kind of outfits? There was a store in Manhattan. Let me see if I can remember the name of it. I think it was, um, I think it was Jumping Jack Flash. I think that was the name of it. Yeah. So, you know, we all got uh, knee-high boots, platform boots. It was about $200. You know, it was leather. There was fur. There's all types of stuff. Um, If you look at the back of the second album, the album that we bought before we went on tour, all of the pictures that are on the back of the second album, has outfits that we purchased. So, you know, each person probably got about $1,000, Okay, it's mine. That's about twenty twenty five thousand dollars in just clothes. So, wow. the thing that cost us uh, a significant amount of money was how we travel. We were riding around on coaches the same box Commodore to get off, we were renting the same coach. You know, big group we had. Uh, actually, 10 people in the band at that time traveling. We had road manager. Our manager didn't pull up on the fly. covering some of his expenses as well. The thing that cost us the most as far as the touring was how we traveled. And we had a few not as nice accommodations as far as our traveling. We could have saved some money. Uh, Then obviously when you get to the hotel, you know, people are picking up the phone, ordering steak sandwiches. (laughs) You know, everything begins to add up. Um, And then the other thing that affected us. While we did quite a bit of touring, what happened is, and this is a history thing, the summer, or rather the winter of 1978, there was a huge blizzard that covered the New York area, that covered Ohio. It kind of shut things down. At the same time, we were rushed back in the studio to do that second album. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, but we weren't really prepared to go back to do that second album. And while we were doing the second album, there was one track that we felt had the potential of a slide. Ironically, somehow or other, that track was lost. Technical glitch. We recorded it, and we come back the next day, and the engineer says, I don't know what happened to that track. Okay. So we finished the second album. The second album comes out. It didn't sell well. So not only have we received a album budget, and then the album didn't sell, well, at the same time, we're not touring as much, 
So right there, that was maybe even technically a three, four hundred thousand dollar turnaround. We received money as an advance from the record company, but now we're not out working as, as much. And then let's go back to this nine or ten of us who have moved to New Jersey. All the slaves from Dayton, Ohio. The only person that was not from Dayton, Ohio, was the actual leader of the group at the time, which is King Washington. So we're all displaced. And by this time, I won't say that none of us were missing mommy and daddy, but the reality is, looking at, at this time, 19, 20-year-olds who, for the first time, are actually out on their own and not making the money that we needed to be making, not understanding that. Um, we didn't have a publisher share at the time. The group, the group signed a deal. A manager who was also our um, producer at the time, he had a management and, and a production contract, which is technically kind of a conflict because the manager's side can recommend you do something for the production side and the production side can recommend that you do something for the management side. Now, he didn't, you know, when we look back, I can't say that he did anything that was not good for us. But at the same time, it's nine young men in New Jersey who have now put out a second album that did not say and we were working. So needless to say, after uh, a hit record, we found ourselves missing a meal here and there. Not starving, but just not doing as well as we should have been. You know, I, I think back to the show uh, that came on about um, New Edition. Same thing. These guys are putting out hit records, but they're not seeing the benefit because if there was a, you know, for us, we signed uh, initial uh, royalty amount was 10% as far as record royalties. But 50% of that went to our producer slash manager. So you've got one person eating off of 50% of our record royalties and collecting 20% off the road. And then you got us ten. Now, the next learning point of this is we were fortunate enough that when we went into the third album, recorded a record uh, called Sell Our Funk, which was a decent record. Still wasn't a smash record, but it was a decent record. At this time, we're having our first disagreements more internally where the leader of the group didn't think that we should go out and tour. That was the dumbest thing we ever allowed to happen. We still had success. We needed to be out working. There were other groups from Ohio. What did he think y'all needed to be doing? I wish you'd tell me. Call him up and ask him. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. I think, Ben, we should call you know, Steve Washington up. We should definitely call Steve up and get him on the show. 
That would be a whole lot of fun. It didn't make any sense. I mean, we could have been outperforming. Now, the other thing that is ironic, keep in mind that we never did a lot of playing in the first place as far as uh, doing clubs and stuff. So when Slide first came out and it's a hit record, we go from doing one or two shows our first show was at the high school that a lot of us went to in Dayton, Ohio. We played April 1st, April Fool's Day. And then we did one show in New Jersey at an outdoor concert in the park, Weekway Park. So our next shows were Capitol Center, uh, the Spectrum in Philadelphia, I mean, we go from no shows to the biggest shows. It took about two or three months for us to understand that we needed to turn our amps down so that the sound system could do what it was supposed to do. <laughs> you know, we're you know, you know, we're taking off the the, the you know the sound crews right. because they're going big dummy turn down. So, you know, it was just a learning process. Now, the biggest thing that I'm about to share with you is for any group that's coming out, and that is we were fortunate enough that before we went into our fourth album, we had a separation with our original manager, Jeff Dixon, who... Later on, by 1985, I, I came to find out, uh, just happened to be reading, reading the date newspaper, that he got murdered with Peter Fox. Yes, he was the one in the house when Peter Tosh got, they got robbed and got murdered by the members Peter Tosh was helping. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In Jamaica, in Kingston. Yeah, yeah. So in 1979, we, um, and it was it was Steve's plan, Washington's plan, that we needed to separate because we were not getting a big enough percentage. At the time, Dixon had a 66 and third publishing scheme. Now, whatever, listen to this. This is very important. He had 66 and two-thirds total publishing share of all of music. Well, he signed that over to us, which was our biggest blessing, actually. So we got our purchasing from him. He relinquished his production agreement. So now we have our production in-house. And he also relinquished our management. So here we are going to the fourth album of our publishing share, which grew back in those days, most groups didn't have publishing. We had a publishing share, we had a 56 and two-thirds share of our publishing and the contract and the management. We could have any book. At, at the time, the publishing deal that y'all had was totally unheard of. Uh, it's on the R&D side of uh, the front side of the business. Totally heard. Totally. 
Now, anybody there to tell you the significance of what's going on? Or you just really told me, just told me like in the dark, winging it. Well, you have to keep in mind that we're still 19 and 20 at the time that we get our primary care. But we didn't know what we had. There was one person that knew the value of what we had, and that's Steve Washington, because he'd been on the players for some years. So he studied what was going on with them. You know, when they were doing fire, inside kind of Steve Washington was listening with Mouth. Mouth. Ralph Middlebrooks, who was Pee Wee the Trump. So he had a much better understanding of the business side, and he was the one who actually was doing most of the production work in the studio with us. You know, there, there's a difference between playing live and recording. There's two different attitudes, mentalities that you have to have to cover both sides. So he was very instrumental, and we all knew it. We gave him the name The Fearless Leader because he was teaching us things that we didn't know. Um, So lo and behold, we get our publishing share back, and we have complete control of the group. But even at that time when we get this back, we've had to buy out Steve, I mean, uh, Jeff Dixon, which wasn't a lot of money, but it might have been... And we're still investigating that, but it might have been fifty two hundred thousand, which was worth it. And we still had a debt. At this time, we're in debt to the record company. So when you go in debt to a record company, they will cross collateralize everything, including your know, dirty draws, to get their money back. The difference is they're getting everything back from your publishing side. And from your royalties. And there's nine of us. And keep in mind, we're not touring a lot. We're not touring a lot. So we go back into the studio. We spent about $140,000 recording. We were recording at a studio uh, in West Orange, New Jersey, House of Music, which was the same studio that at the time... Cool and the Gang was doing some of their big hits. Uh, Celebration. Uh, Ladies Night. We were, at, we were in the same studio. We were in Studio A sometimes. They were in Studio B. The problem is everything that we were recording at that time, because we were by ourselves, the other person who assisted us a lot was a staff producer for Atlantic Records. His name is Jimmy Douglas. Jimmy Douglas has gone on. He's still working with um, artists like Timberland, um, Missy Elliott. He's not only a great guy, we like him personally, but he knew what he was doing way back in the day. He was a staff producer for Atlantic Records. He worked with, you know, Aretha Franklin. I mean, he's just, you know, just a great engineer, great guy. So when we're recording the fourth album, it's just us. We're in there doing okay, but we, you know, we kind of deterred our writing style as far as what we were talking about. We weren't talking about, oh, she looks good and 
how sexy is this and, you know, money that. We started talking about things that were ringing true that we had an appreciation for where we were at. And at times, certain types of uh, religious beliefs. So when we turned in that record to Atlantic Records, they were like, no, (laughs) this is not what we just spent a hundred plus thousand dollars on you guys to record. They didn't like it. So they flew some of us back up. I was uh, staying up in New Jersey at the time. Some of the guys went back to Dayton. They flew some of the guys back up and we went into the studio, Atlantic uh, Studios, with Jimmy Douglas. And that was how Just a Touch of Love was born. Now, mind you, when we did Just a Touch of Love, and I co-wrote the lyrics on that track, I didn't really think that Just a Touch of Love was a hit at the time because we were used to uh, tracks and stuff that we would come up with, songs that were technically, I would say, more like probably the funkadelic type tracks, just real hard core type mm-hmm. funk tracks. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that Just a Touch of Love was a turning point for the group. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Um, and keep in mind, we had the publishing share, a 66 and two-thirds publishing share from that point on. So we went out and we did some touring. But by this time, some of us are beginning to not even like each other. (laughs) You know, young men had, you know, young men have fallen in love, fallen out of love. One or two of us, three of us had, you know, children on the way or, you know, have have, have kids. Um, we were a group that didn't have drug problems back at that point. You know, we were doing the atypical things that young people do. You know, we were drinking a little bit. We didn't have anybody, for the most part, that was messed up on alcohol. Uh, we were just getting around situations that involved the powder stuff. Okay. But we really weren't messed up that way. We weren't messed up that way. But if you can remember the day that they announced that Richard Pryor had blown himself up. Yes. And we were all going, what? What? (laughs) He did what? That's when, you know, crack was hitting streets. Right. So we had never seen anything like that. Um, but within the next year, it was beginning to affect some of us. Although that never had anything to do with, at the time, and this is as we're going into the fifth album, which had Watching You, which was, which was one of our other biggest selling records. We weren't affected by it even through that album. But what did happen is we knew when we were going into the studio on the fifth album, we all collectively knew and people at Atlantic Records knew 
that if we were going into the studio with, with Jimmy Douglas, we were coming out of the studio with a hit. We knew it. Atlantic knew it. But I'm going to go back to the original problem. Our biggest problem is, is that there's nine, ten, and now really twelve because we've brought in Sterling the Young at the time and Kurt Jones. We had at one point another uh, other horn players. We had six horn players on the road. We had, I mean, it was just crazy. You know, we had like 14 people on stage. That's right. And, and what was standard for one night's work? You mean as far as what we were making? Mm-hmm. I think at the time, and this is on the Just a Touch Love Tour, we were probably, at that point, we had worked ourselves back up to like 10, 12, 13,000, which back then was more than what it is now. But still, because of the amount of people that we had on the road, how we were traveling, it just wasn't enough. We needed at least twice that, and we needed to be out on the road pretty much doing at least 70 to 100 shows so that we were getting into the markets that were our biggest markets, which is mostly the southern states and the northeastern states. Now, this is the other thing that's very important. When Slide came out in 1977, and we were living in New Jersey, we were living in East Orange, New Jersey, the New York radio never played Slide. New York did not play Slave, which was, you know, that was kind of dramatic, group named Slave, you know, nine black guys named Slave. They never played us until Just Such a Love came out. So when we so were home, Just to Touch of Love was considered a crossover, though, right? Exactly. Just to Touch of Love crossed us over. We started getting played on, on the radio. Then they started playing. Now, some of the Jersey stations would play slides. But none of the, like, back in the day, BLS and those stations, they never played. You know, they, you know, Frankie Crocker was one of the main guys back in the day. They never played so when Just a Touch of Love came out, it was a crossover track. They started to play us. Um, and then when Watching You came out, we owned New York. They played us. And then the next record was Luther Vandross. We had crossed over. Well, the other thing that happened was by the time we finished the Watching You record, we weren't getting along. We, we could come together, make hit records. But personally, there was a there, there was a, a fracture. Uh, me, Mark Adams, and Floyd, who grew up together as kids, I don't remember not knowing these guys. We didn't fight. We didn't have any disagreements. But it was obvious that something was going to happen because there was too many things going on, and um, there were a lot of people who were not. Uh, feeling the direction of the, that Steve Washington wanted us to go in, which actually at the time was the correct direction. Were, were there any hints that something was coming up? 
You said, were there any hits after what? Hits. Yeah, no, in, in, in other words, did you feel that things were not going to be um, the best for yourself and everybody involved before uh, bad things took place? Or, did, or is this a situation where you couldn't tell until after it was too late? No, the the biggest problem was, even as we were recording the fifth album, we realized that, number one, there was just never enough money. Steve Washington was using the correct mentality of using some of the people who had come into the group after the initial nine, which was Starlina, Kurt Jones, and Steve Arrington, to do some new projects, which was the George Clinton concept. You know, you had Parliament, you had Funkadelic, you had the Mary Jane Girls. This was the concept that he was trying to do for us which was really the, the right way to do it, but there were too many guys who just didn't like the idea of it. So I never toured with the Watching You uh, album. Right after we finished that album, I stayed with Steve Washington, and we went into the studio and recorded the first hit record for Aura, which was Are You Single? Everybody else went on and toured on the Watching You record. So the guy that I actually am doing some things with now, his name is Charles Tito Carter, he went on with the group. In essence, he took my place, because he's a sax player, uh, keyboard player. They went on and went out on tour. Had a very successful tour. They had a new manager. Um, that's another story. That's another show. <laughs> they went on out. We did the next Aura album. And we had some success. But again, with Steve Washington, and this... The biggest problem that I look back on was Steve Washington. He had a mentality for making records, but he did not have a mentality of working the product. Ah. Uh, okay. If you look at Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry, and you know some of it, I just don't understand. How can you write and produce everything? I mean, I think, you know, obviously he has staff producers, staff writers, and so forth. But when you look at the credits, he's done everything. And then he goes out and puts on a, a dress and does shows across the country. I mean, he's covering all his bases. See what I'm saying? He's covering all the bases. He's, he's directing, producing, writing, performing. He's doing it all. We were a one-trick pony. We put out records but we were not performing. Even on the back of the, I think it's the third album, if you look at the credits at the very bottom, and Steve Washington was the primary person who did the credits, he said, you'll hear us, but you'll never see it. Mm -hmm. Now, who says that? <laughs> Only somebody who's already in the know 
Exactly. Very, very, very interesting stories that we're listening to. You know, I like to call them old school uh, stories. And from this, we learn what to do, what not to do, what to look out for, what to get prepared for, and how to know what you need to know if you really want to be serious about a career in the entertainment industry. And, of course, if you just tuned in, you're listening to FM 107.7, FM 107.5, coming to you live, simulcast out of Natalie, Louisiana, and Christian Pass, Mississippi. My name is Benito Childs, our co-host for this afternoon's radio, uh, music talk radio, drive time. It's Wild Bill Turner. And of course, we want to give big ups, high fives, and uh, thank you to iHeartMedia, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Podcast Garden, of course, Spreaker.com. Go to Spreaker.com. I said it, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, Spreaker.com, and get the app. And you can listen to our show anytime you want to, or many other shows that are also on UPRN Music Talk Radio. That being said, Wild Bill, I'm sure you got some questions for our afternoon for this afternoon's guest. Um, talk for a little bit. I mean, I'm just really enthused about well, the, the story he's telling us. I want to know what really happened in 1980 when you left the group. What was the factor that made you say, I'm done with this group. I need to move on. What really happened in 1980 that made you decide you you can no longer be with slave. There was a management change. And I'll be honest with you at the time, I didn't know which way I was going to go. We were over in our business management office um, over in Manhattan. And I'm sitting there. I'm not knowing what I'm going to do because, I mean, there were nights because at one point, during this period of time, we were all living in a house. The group was living in a house uh, that Thomas Jefferson's grandfather built. This is a big old house in, in New Jersey. Um, there were nights that I thought there were going to be altercations. You know, there was there was just, you know, people are tired of not being able to take care of themselves and take care of their families. So... We're over in, and, and then there's some things going on that I didn't know about, where this new manager came in and was interested in taking over the group as far as whoever wanted to go with this person. Well, as I'm sitting there trying to decide what I'm going to do, this person who took over the group says, I'm not worried about Lockett. I got my boys around him over in Jersey. And I'm sitting there going, did he just threaten me? Sure, my sounds like right yeah, my attorney's sitting right there. It was a no-brainer. I said, no, I'm not going. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I wasn't going to do that. I hadn't gone from Dayton, Ohio, hit record five albums later, to feel like I would allow somebody to threaten me basically in front of my attorney. That that's was a done pretty, uh, that's, that's pretty over the top. 
So way over the top. At, it, it, at this point, that you know for sure that the gangster element is now into uh, the business that you're doing, uh, or, yeah. or or you're not. Doing that. I didn't. I didn't realize at the time how bad it was going to get, but I knew I was not going to put myself in that. Uh, I'm a nonviolent person. I've never, you know, been one to um, not be able to talk my way out of a fight. I'm not trying to fight nobody. I just that's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I walked out not knowing where I was going to, you know, go as far as you know anything. So that was it. Was really later on that day that you know Steve said, "Well, let's just stay together." I mean, we stay together, and then we started working on the uh, or thing. So they went on. Uh, I'll never we'll forget the uh, the day that um, the new manager they signed on to the new manager, and uh, they had rented a van. They came over and they all left in the van. So. Uh, Floyd Miller left, Mark Adams went, Danny Webster, um, Mark Adams, I don't know if I said that twice, but it was about six guys that left. Steve Arrington, who, you know, had kind of taken over the group as far as doing lead vocals. It was his uh-huh. songs at the time, from Just Such a Love to Watching You, he had become the lead Focus for the most part, but he was originally brought into the group to be the drummer. He's a very wow. accomplished drummer. Uh, he's he's. single as they were out touring with watching you are you single was released it did reach the top 10 uh or i think it was the top 20 on the r&b chart still a successful record we didn't tour that much on that so the reason why i keep saying that we didn't tour that much this is for all the upcoming artists that are listening to me, young, middle-aged, old, a band's, a, a musical situation is only as successful as your connection with your audience. So if you are not performing, 
you better be doing a podcast. You better be doing uh, some videos. You have to connect with your audience because that's how you will make a living. If you do not have a connection with your fan base, you cannot make a living. Uh, going back to 1986 is when uh, I'd been through some legal things of my own doing. And I pulled away from playing music. I started working a regular job. And to this day, I've never regretted it because I have still been able to do music. Uh, the last, from, let me see here, the last, starting 13 years ago, I started playing in church. And that was when I actually began to get my groove back as far as playing sax. You know, there's nothing like a sax player in a Baptist church. <laughs> um, I never forget when I started playing, I was like, well, you know, I can't play like I do live. But Baptist music, you know, or they say, you know, black church, it's really based on blues. You know, most um, church hymns are kind of based on the blues scale blues chords. So I was able to begin to get my love back for music. And in 2002, we were finally able to get some of our royalties that were due, which is, and let me really cut you the chase with that, which is still affecting us now. We have been able to come back together from a legal standpoint even though we've lost a couple members, we've had to deal with their estates to make sure that we can approach uh, our past and past issues to the royalties. If you think groups like the Rolling huge groups, just just they might not get along personally them together and take care of the business. That is so important. I mean, I don't care where you go. Uh, shining shoes. The person next to you might not like to leave that corner because you're the person all you're going to do to take care of your business. So, biggest problem with slaves Everyone who has come from it is has not been, for the most part, a willingness, personal issues aside, for the benefit of pleasing our fans and making a living. Now, I'm making a living because I work a job, but I could just as easily change a few things and still go out and perform more than what has been going on. Um, there's too many times where if you don't understand the business, because when we first heard the word publishing, we thought it was books. The same thing got nothing to do with books. And I laugh, you know, every time I, I say that because it's like, you big dummy, that's where the money's at. So as of right now, Slide is a 42-year-old song. 
Think about that. 42 years old. So in copyright world, there is a concept called copyright reversion, which is what we're doing now. All the groups who put out music 1977, 1978 on up, mm-hmm. you're able to do a copyright reversion and get a 100% royalty return. And then you can sign uh, Now, Now, does music have to be in rotation, being played on the radio, or, or do you have to prove that it was played previously before now? What how's that work? Anything that was copywritten, and let's say you sign it to a label and, ne- and it never went anywhere, depending on, on what type of deal you sign, they can still say that, okay, well, they own the masters, they own not all the publishing, they own some of the publishing. No, it doesn't have to be in, in rotation. If you sign the deal with the record company, in 1977, 1978, you are entitled, if you get all the writers together, to do, to do the paperwork that's necessary to file for a, a complete reversion so that you own all of your publishing, even if you never had the publishing. Okay, let's say it was 1992. The apple. Let, let's say it's 1992 when you did this project, you were the vocalist on it, but you didn't write. Uh, any of the material you were following somebody else's instructions, but you would like to get paid at least for the session, and they never released anything, and then they decided to use the song or something. No, if you only performed, then you're only entitled to whatever agreement that you did if you did not write any of the material or get credit for writing. If you, like for us, we received our publishing share in 1979. We had our publishing, a 66 and two-thirds share. But in going through all of the years, I mean, just think about where you guys are at. And I don't know how you guys are, but, you know, 35 years ago, well, let's see. When you, you guys might have been great. When, when you guys were on stage... Uh, I think I was meeting the members of the Commodores at a place in Hollywood or Lodi place that was uh, the bungalows where everybody used to congregate back in the day. Okay. So, okay. so okay. you know, I, I, I was actually um, uh, hoping to compete with you guys, compete against you as a young musician during that period. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. But you have to I can remember recording sessions where, you know, somebody said, well, you know, uh, make sure you put your name down, because you get credits for even hand claps. Now, oh, yeah. Yeah. But what happens is, if you're not involved in who's filing the copyright, or if you're not involved, well, really, that's the biggest thing. If you look at the back of the fourth album, you will not see my name as a co-writer for Just a Touch of Love. But I am. I wrote the lyrics and the chains, Just a Touch of Your Love, all the time, 
soothes my mind, keeps me high. I wrote that, and I was the one who sang it. But because I wasn't sitting with the person who actually did the credit for the album. Now, that's called publishing administration, for those of you who are unsure what we're talking about. Whoever's performing that part of the activity, you got to mention it because they could leave you out. Right. Right? But the blessing is, but the blessing is for me, I made sure that my name is on the copyright, which is all that's important. So even though you don't see my name on the back of the album, the most important thing is I'm listed as a writer on the actual copyright that was sent to to the Library of Congress. And to this day, you know, I mean, what? Three weeks ago, I got a check for $1,700 based on 40-year-old songs. Your writer's royalties as a songwriter and your publishing share is good for 50 years after you die. Now, listen to what I just said. What did you say? Let's say 50 years after your death. Yeah. Let's say I pass. So let's say I pass. 15 years from now, let's say I die in 15 years. So my estate, the royalties that will be coming to my estate will then go to, in this case, I'm married. So if she's still living, it goes to her. But in the event that I'm deceased and my wife is deceased, those royalties are good for 50 years after my death. That's why it's so important that for people who are writing and who have a publishing share to do all the homework they can, do not let somebody say they're going to put you down. No, you sit down with them as they're doing it or demand they sit down with you as as you're doing the copyright. And you make sure that after it is sent in, that you follow up and make sure that the percentage that you agreed upon that you were going to get is there and that it's done. Because if you don't do that, you're screwed. And and there you have it, everybody. You heard it from A. True move, died in the world, triple O G that's the business part. <laughs> That's why they call it show business. You got to make sure you do it. It's your business. And most of it, I hate to say, is business. The show is, the show is how you create the business. But if you don't take care of the business, there won't be a show and there won't be any money. Um, is it true? Is, is it really true that the better you are at business, the more of a show you get to have? Like they'll trust you with the money and stuff. If you show oh, people definitely. who are investors that you know your stuff, they'll trust you, and you can you can then have permission to be even more creative. Is, it, is that how it goes? It takes money 
to create. When I say that, I'm sitting here in my studio now, my home studio. I've got everything I need. I've got video equipment, you know, drones, Nikon camera. I've got everything that I need to create, I own. So if I don't have, you know, these days, you know, for the most part, no one goes to a studio that someone owns and pays them $150 an hour like we used to. A lot of the music that you hear that's on the radio from rappers, R&B singers, a lot of these people have their, their own studios at home. Well, let's talk about that. Let's just take a quick sidebar about that because I'm sure um, quite a few of our uh, listeners would like to know, you know, what's really going on out there? Um, is there really no money at all in opening up um, a full-on production facility unless you got contracts with major labels um, and you're getting, like, you know, half your roster coming through your door to do production? Um, and is it really like a big superstar privilege to go into one of those big places with all the bells and whistles and the concierge service, you know, they'll bring their families to you, carry your coat and whatnot? I'm old school. I, I, you know, I only remember it that way. And then all of a sudden, um, there was no budget for that. You know, you must be Michael Jackson or Julio Iglesias if you want somebody to bring you a glass of water. No, we don't do it that way. You go down to the guitar <laughs> center, you pick out this, you get this equipment, you go home, you sit down, you plug it in, you study down, uh, bring us back a song. What's your opinion? I mean, really, you're talking about my thoughts. But what, how, how should it be? Or should we be able to have some of both as professionals in the business? It's always going to be from this point over, some of both. If, and I see them here. Uh, I live in the Georgia area now. Uh, downtown Atlanta is only 30 minutes from me. Um, there are studios here that you can rent to go in. There are uh, tons of uh, video places, you know, with the huge green screen. I will say that if someone is wanting to do that, that unless they have access to a great deal of money to put it together, it's going to be very hard to do it from scratch. Um, now, Again, I have a home studio. I'm not trying to bring just people in to record at my home because this is my home. Right. But if right. I had a location, then if I was using the mentality of doing that, oh, it can be done. But it goes back to the same thing as far as having uh, a successful band. You have to... Number one, you have to have, if, if you're not the engineer, then you have to have some, some very good engineers. You're going to have to network and advertise your services to some of these uh, labels. Uh, still, what happens is after you have recorded something, the nine times out of ten, it's still going to be probably the final mix and then the final master is still going to be done probably at a larger facility because 
it's all about you having the same punch that the Rihanna's of the world and the Rick Ross's. I mean, if your stuff doesn't sound as good as far as the punch of it, it's not going to happen. It's just like when you read a book. If you open up that first page, if the first, second, and third page doesn't get you, you stop. If you're in your car and you're driving and you got your radio on and something comes on, if it doesn't get you in the first four to eight, 12 bars, you change the channel. Absolutely. So it's the same with... Yeah, so it's the same with your sound. I mean, you can have a great song, but if it's not brought to your attention because of the sound of it, it's not going to happen because you are competing with um, great uh, studio houses as far as them mixing and, and mastering your, your music. I mean, for us, when we did slides, it sounded great, but the record president at the time, Henry Allen, said, it sounds great, guys. I love it, but I want to bring some of the guys back up, and I want Jimmy Douglas to mix it. Now, that makes all the difference in the world, right? But let me ask you all something. The if, you're, in the world. if you're an independent in today's business arena, and you've you come as far as, well, okay, I, I completed production, but I don't have a final master with that real punch to it. How do you get one of those guys who's got the gold records and on his wall for being the engineer to give you the recipe that he gave to the Big Time Records Company? How does that happen? Now, I would say that It's not as expensive to to have somebody do a, a mix on it and master it for you. That isn't as bad. The expense, the real expense comes in the recording of it, you know, and if you got singers, you know, you can, you know, it's all these different takes. I mean the the, the actual biggest expense is the recording of the record. The actual mixing of it, you, have to, you just have to do your, your homework. You have to uh, call around. You have to um, any studio. Well, I remember back in the day when I was a very young man, I used to listen to all the side stories, you know, and there was this guy who had his own masking lab, Bernie Grunman, I think it was. You ever heard of him? And there was always somebody saying, well, we're going over to Bernie Grunman to get, to get this this mastered and he makes all the difference in the world. Why, if he does it, for sure you got the kind of sound that's going to light up the dance floor. It's going to make people want to stop in the middle of the street and have their babies in the car. It's just going to be a rich sound. It's going to blow everybody away. And that's why it's not much. Let me just say that. I, I, I remember some of them same stories, right? Oh, yeah. As good as Jimmy Douglas was, and remixing our first record. And this is in Atlantic Studio, the same studio that at the time Aretha Franklin, uh, the Rolling Stones, all these people are recording at. You have the engineers who mixed it, but then there was a separate guy 
that did the mastering. Mastering is a particular skill, a, a particular art, because you won't master this record or this song the way you master that song. Each song is mastered a slightly different way, and, and it's complex. So for anybody who's trying to get their record out, don't think you can do it all. You do need help. Um, if you are able to, which is very possible, if if you're able to get just a few pieces, you can actually record enough material, even in the park, to have quality tracks as far as your, you know, because, you know, most people are not using live drummers. The big, big right. artists, they can still bring in, you know, the type of drummer that you pay him, you know, $10,000 or $5,000 for a track to record for well, well, $700 an hour whatever. Because you're, you're in the wind section, you play horn. Well, now, um, the difference between live drums and drums coming out of the machine, can y'all really tell the difference in the feel and does it, does it really affect um, what you deliver um, a, a, as a player? I can tell, but be honest with you, I have been conditioned like everyone else who has lived long enough, if you listen to, especially when you listen to hip-hop artists, and I'm not saying anything negative about them, but great. You know, I've tried to rap before, and I realized these guys have skills. Yeah. Uh, but, if you listen to the, <laughs> but if you listen to the track, I would say that 99% of them have, you know, drum machines and so forth. But is what they do with that. I mean, they use, you know, um, their skill to transform a message. I mean, even if you listen to some of the old, old school artists like Earth, Wind & Fire, I don't know what Maurice is singing. I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't make out his words, but I try to sing it in the car. You see people, those, uh, those, uh, those were you not know, words. Those, those, those were riffs. <laughs> those were not words. Those were actually riffs. And you know what? They started out as vocal exercises. You know, exactly. Remember, you remember Anita Baker, right? You know, she had this caught up oh, in yeah. the rapture of love. And, and it started out, you know, oh, oh, oh I'm caught up in the Well, the old part was really the vocal, uh, uh, this is, you know, for you, take these four notes and practice this run. And so she decided to put it on the front of the song. I was kind of wondering where all this stuff comes from. And I finally realized, now I listened to everybody Fire really closely, and then I went I listened to the person who was their vocal coach, Seth Riggs, and I learned uh, a whole bunch of insider stuff just, just by listening. Really interesting. Yeah. But, you know, being a successful artist is about giving out uh, the vibe that is felt. Slide was a vibe. It's not, you know, 
It's not that it was saying anything, you know. I mean, slide <clears throat> turned out to be, you know, people would slide. You know, they slide across the floor and all this other stuff. But it was the vibe that it gave me. Um, and speaking of Anita Baker, she did a show here in Atlanta at the Fox. I went to see her. I hadn't seen her since back in the day. How is she? Feel awesome. I mean, you know, awesome. I didn't understand hardly nothing she said. <laughs> during, during, I mean, as she's singing, I can't, you know, oh, oh, but I'm telling you, she had everybody standing on their feet because she's awesome. You know, she, she gives you what you can see. So as new artists coming up, it's about you giving people something that they can feel. Now, if you have a message in it, that's important too. But, you know, for anyone under 30 years old, the difference is, for the most part, they, they give you nothing to use your imagination with. They immediately talk about it and yank your parts out, of your, your clothes off. I didn't put mine where yours, you know, you know, back in the day, we did love songs. Well, yeah. It's very rare. You know, like now Tyreek. He does a combination of both. He does love songs, but he's also describing everything that he's doing to his partner. So, uh, so if there's some 14, 15 year old people out here that are looking to, you know, get into the music industry, first and foremost, if you're a singer, then I would advise you to at some point still get with someone who can give you exercises so that you can get the most out of what you do. Um, you guys who are on the radio, people do not truly understand or can appreciate the skill that it takes for you to consistently talk and be entertaining. And even when you're not feeling well, you might have a you know, a headache, whatever, you can't give that vibe out. You have to perform. It, it, it is about performing. So where there's no passion, there's nothing. If you don't have a passion to do it, don't fool with it. You know, oh, no, you got to want this real bad because in order to get it, you got to get some all over you. Without that, yeah. it doesn't work. It's not that kind of business. You got to, Breathe and sleep and digest and inhale it and just, you know, all, almost to the point of absolute obsession. And speaking of obsession. Oh, it has to be an obsession. I mean, um, you know, can we talk a little bit about the Mark Adams thing? Yeah. Broke my heart. You know, I, Look, I, 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 at first, I got even though I was on there, you know, I started looking at the pictures on, the, on my screen and stuff. I'm like, you know what? Let's talk about it at least a little bit because I'm sure there's a lot of people still want to know is there anything that helps to uh, determine what happened, what led up to the brother's demise. I kind of touched on it a little bit when I brought up the Richard Pryor thing. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, there were a few of us that experimented, included myself. I woke up 
through the assistance of some police officers. <laughs> okay. And turned my life around. Okay? Okay. And then pulled back from everything and anything that reminded me of it. Which means that if I had a lady in my life, it would have to be someone who would not tolerate that type of behavior. Which mm-hmm. means that for years after I just started working a regular job, I wouldn't even carry money in my pocket. Okay. Or streets that I would not turn down if I had ever had any type of involvement in something negative. I mean, it was an absolute mentality that I'm not going to do that. Did I have 100% success back in those years? No. But if I had 90, 95% success, it was me maturing and growing. So now I'm fine. But sometimes I still forget to put money in my pocket. I just have all my credit stuff. What I'm saying is with some of the guys, there was not that sense of urgency to pull back from bad habits. We all have bad habits, whether it's, you know, going to the doctor or whatever it is. Right. With Mark, and you have to understand that Mark Adams was one of the greatest bass players as far as our R&B funk world of all time. Uh, We had Uh, musicians, including some of the Rolling Stones, would come up and watch this guy record. He was a one-take guy. When we did the fourth and the fifth album, Mark Adams was a beast. He was just at the top of his game because that's all he did. If you saw Mark, he had his guitar. You know, um, when he got caught up, <clears throat> he got caught up. He turned some of his passion for music into that. Some of it, and I can't speak for him, but I know when I was caught up for about a year, is that you forget what's important. Uh, what's to me, one of the most important things is to have your peace of mind uh, to understand that when you look in the mirror, you should feel good about yourself when you look in the mirror. And I don't mean how you look, but I mean you should have peace of mind to say, okay, I'm good. I'm doing what I need to do today. I'm doing what I did what I should have done yesterday. He kind of lost focus with that for a long period of time, where as much as I loved him, I had to not associate with him. In other words, so, you're saying that there's a dude who says, I know I'm drunk. It's okay because I know about it. And I know that I'm going to be right. sober. All I have to do is decide that, you know, I'm not going to have this next drink. And, well, tomorrow morning I'm going to be sober. There's that guy, and then there's the guy that you have to tell, excuse me, you're drunk. Ooh, what do you mean I'm drunk? No, I'm normal with everybody else. No, 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 you're not. You're saying he went there. 
Okay. Yeah, and but 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 the beautiful thing about it is in the last six months, me and Marcus started connecting again, and some of it was we were discussing what we needed to do to straighten out some of the business with the group, with the record company. But the other thing is, you know, he finally became that dude again to talk to me. I mean, keep in mind, I don't remember not knowing Mark. That's how far wow. I knew. I knew and I knew Mark like I knew my parents. Like, there's not a day that you remember meeting your mom or your dad. They were just always right. there. So, when the big split came after the watching you out in Stone Jam, I think I only saw Mark one other time about a year later. They came back to New York and did a show. But then I didn't see him again for about another two, two, three years. The first time I saw him after that period of time, I was like, you know, I was, I was so glad to see him. And I said, hey, Mark. And he looked at me, but he wasn't there. He kind of just looked through me. And his whole spirit was different. And... You know, I mean, I'm getting emotional now because I'm saying that happens to a lot of people. But in this case, it happened to him. And he actually uh, fooled a lot of us because we were going to lose him way before we lost him. But in that last Six months, you know, he just he just asked me, he said, he said, Well, Lockett, how did you do it? And I told him, I said, I don't associate with people who, you know, do drugs or drink too mm-hmm. much. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with a person who has, you know, a drink or whatever. But I said, if they pull out something that I'm that is illegal, I said, I'm gone, I'm out. And and not that I think there's something wrong with them. I was dealing with my own weakness of saying, I don't think I can sit here while you're doing that and me not eventually get involved. Right, right. Exactly. And to this day, I could be at work and somebody pull out something. I mean, it hasn't happened, but I'm just saying wherever it's at. If, if somebody mm-hmm. pulls something out, I'm gone. Because I don't trust myself like that to this day. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been over 30 years since I've, you know, uh-huh. but I don't trust myself. You know, because you, I, you, I, you remember I, what happened the last time you didn't have control until you. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So from, from girlfriends, or in this case, wife, you know, I was telling Mark, I said, you cannot associate yourself with someone who promotes or allows you to do that. And he was really beginning to, to say, you know, well, you told me that before. I said, well, yeah, and, it, and it's working for me. And, you know, I said, you know, I love you. And he was reaching out, which is, which is very important. A person doesn't reach out, they're not even trying. You have to try. And then 
I got a phone call at five o'clock in the morning from uh, my partner, Charles Tito Carter. I cried for a couple hours. I mean, I actually cried more for him than some of my family members. But Mark was my family. And I knew the real Mark. The real Mark, we were crazy. We did crazy stuff. Just prankster stuff. I mean, we just, I mean, we were, we were grown children, which is kind of what's necessary to be artistic, whether or not you're doing um, masonry work, anything that's artistic, you have to have a childish mentality about some of it because you're creating something. You have to, you know, do something and then go, okay, well, no, that's not good. And you have to do something else. They had a terminology for that incorporated at the creative company. It's called adult delinquent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be an adult delinquent. You know, I ain't going to behave. I'm not going to, you know what? I'm not going to tie the shoestrings. I'm going to just put the shoes on. Well, make me do it. <laughs> exactly. The delinquent. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, uh, the dude in the Martin, band that shows up at the airport and hits the job and, 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 and talking about, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Mark did not kill himself. He did not um, purposely do anything. But his lifestyle eventually put him in position where we lost him. Wow. And to this day, it's, it's hard for me to uh, talk about, but I do talk about it from a standpoint of trying to help other people because uh, one of my other best friends, he never played music. I allowed him to get into his car when I was about 19, uh, 18 years old. And I should have never let him drive off. Now, he didn't hurt himself that night, but about three years later, I learned that he flipped his Trans Am over three or four times and really, you know, killed himself. And if you're truly a friend of somebody, you tell them when they're being stupid or uh, careless or whatever. If you really care about somebody, you tell them. Now, I'm not saying you, you know... try to take over their life with it. But if you really care about somebody, you tell them. So I feel good that I had that conversation and those conversations with Mark. And, and he knew, you know, that, you know, he was living outside of, you know, God's grace. But he also knew that he wasn't, you know, perfect. But he was trying to make that change. So, you know, I feel good about that part. Um, but that never really interfered during the period of time that we were playing as far as throughout most of those uh, albums. But the last three albums that they did outside of Atlantic Records, Spirit wasn't there. That's just my opinion. I wasn't involved in those records, but the the vibe that I knew that a lot of those guys were still capable of, it wasn't there. It kind of transi transitioned over to Steve Arrington and uh, Charles Carter, some of the guys that went on with that project. So um, there's songwriting and then, and, and there's production 
and then there's the uh, spiritual the, the spiritual awareness of making something that people can relate to, which is why some now, rappers now, now that's can't what I, I, I want to ask you, you know, because it's the seventies, and you know, I'm I'm born in '58, so I remember the seventies. I participated. I remember that was the height of the sexual revolution. Uh, all kinds of stuff was happening. It was brand new, not only to our generation, but to the world, you know. Uh, and that being the case, okay, so everybody experimented with something. I know that the 70s was the blow era. That was, you know, blow and weed, okay. And yeah. after that, you know, there's certain levels of, uh, certain different uh, brands of uh, high-end, top-shelf alcohol became the thing that, you know, to do. But then during the 70s, cocaine was so rapid, everybody wore a coke spoon around their neck. Even if you didn't do coke, you just had to have that thing to prove that you were cool. You know, that was like the thing, the way to get in the party. You know, I'm cool. Now, give me that. From your memory, because now, and I'm going to say this before I, before I ask you the question. When I used to ask questions about the 60s, the real hippies used to warn me, anybody who could tell you what happened, they wasn't there. Because if you participated in the sexual uh, uh, drug revolution of the 60s, you don't remember nothing. The only people who remember anything were people who were watching the people who participated. Okay. So now <laughs> in the 70s, there's a lot of observing participants. Um, based on your you being an observing participant or participating observer, what do you remember about how to pick your ass up and play? Did any of that stuff ever make the music be better, or did you just make it be different and you thought it was better? What's your recollection? I would say that... I can only think of one time where it helped us. And if you remember, in the beginning of this interview, I said that when we did slide, it was after we had traveled all the way to New Jersey to record an, a full album, but we didn't have slide. Well, that night, uh, somebody had pulled out some old bottle of bourbon Drac was drinking some of that. Uh, Steve Washington. Uh, Tim Dozier never drank. He, he never drank. He never, he never smoked marijuana. Uh, he was down there with him. Um, and Adam. So Fly was more of a vibe because Drac was singing Fly even as they were doing what they were doing, because they were just, they were in the moment, they were in the vibe. Me and Floyd was upstairs in one of the bedrooms. We passed out. <laughs> <laughs> we wake up and hear it. It's like, what in the hell is that? I mean, it was just that vibe. So we right. come down, you know, down the stairs. And they're in it, they just, I mean, they played it for like an hour and a half. They just kept playing it. And, and we knew. So that was the one time that I would say that, believe it or not, some gunja or 
and some bourbon helped with that hit record. You you were thanking whoever bought the bourbon and the herbs for making it better. (laughs) I was thankful. No other time. There's no wrong thing. The reason I want to talk about it is simply because, you know what, there's going to work and being recreational. I mean, I don't care if you cut lawns for a living. I mean, because if you work at one of the higher-end places, they may allow you to have beer at lunchtime. But does it make you a provider? Or does it just make you think that you're doing a better job? When really what's happening is you're just kind of, you know, coasting through and going through the motions. And the reason to talk about this is because it's rampant in our business. You know, one of your friends was on uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was Stone Paxton, and, and and he agreed with the guest that we had before him. He said that, well, the machine looks for talented people who have challenges. Yes. In other words, somebody who's got some deficiencies and got some issues over to the side will probably get chosen before somebody who's got a solid background and a good home life and all of that anchor stuff, you know, what I call regular people lifestyle, if there's such a thing. Um, you know, two-parent family, uh, raised inside, never been homeless, never never had to get to free lunch at school, got blocked off, never had to take the bus. One of those kids, but with equal talent, they're going to take the kid who's, you know, got this story about how a couple of nights we had to sleep in the bushes because my pops didn't, he lost his job. And, you know, he told my mom something about he lost his check or something. And then we got kicked out the house, so we had to be in the street. They're going to take that guy with the colorful story before they take the guy who's got a solid background. Now, we know this. Exactly. And that's the reason to come right out and say it because... The question becomes, do judge promote a better sounding music or do they just make you imagine that it sounds better? <laughs> now, again, I will say that I don't remember a time. No, there was one time that we were, that we were and I told you about that when we were uh, recording. Oh, no, I just uh, you know, I've, I've been in listening sessions with a person that, that was getting ready to hit the play button to say stuff like, well, uh, uh, before I play this, you know, I, I need y'all to know, you know, uh, they was real strong when they came in here to do this. Now, uh, for, those of, for those of you who believe in getting stoned, maybe you want to go outside and come back stoned that way. You'll be feeling the way they were feeling when they made it. Then it probably makes sense to you. But, I mean, you know, here we go. So, exactly. you know, over the years, you know, I look at uh, what different habits have done to some of our great stars and, you know, how it's deteriorated their internal personality, who they are to themselves. Now, that's really a good thing. If you start altering and tampering with that, now you have uh, affected or impacted the creative flow to where the artist cannot really deliver the gift that he was born with. He delivered exactly. what y'all left him with. It's a spirit exactly. thing. And that's the reason I want to, you know, just, you know, get your thoughts on my thoughts. I will just say, and I'm afraid I'm reaching a point where I'm going to have to um, 
leave our conversation, but I will say that there's, there's always times, just like if you go out on a date, you know, you drink a little wine and you kind of, you know, especially with somebody that you're just, you know, getting around, you have a little wine and you kind of unwind and you get to know them. But if you're going to deal with this person more often, then you will always realize that you need to be sober <laughs> to have a meaningful dialogue and understanding of what's going on. And it's, and it's no different than with music. I mean, many artists will go in the studio and, you know, they might smoke a little herb or whatever, whatever. But when it's time to, you know, to maybe come up with something that they feel good about, but when it's time to execute what you felt good about, you better be sober. <laughs> you need to be sober. The engineer needs to be sober. The people who's recording it, as far as your uh, musicians, it's still about being, you know, I've heard your mind. I've heard those stories about the badass solo and the commentary after the solo was not do it again unless he gets as stoned as he was when he did it the first time. You can't do that every <laughs> night. Uh-uh. Now, put it in the record, you know, leave it there, you know, every once in a while, you're going to have to work on that. You know, ain't no way in the world he's going to be able to do that again. No, he was stoned out of his door. No, he can't even remember and, what and, he did. <laughs> and, and ironically, I'm going to go back to this. When we recorded Slide in the studio, Everybody was dead sober. Wow. So that's solid proof that maybe the idea or the mood came after some bourbon and some gunja. Well, you but know, the execution was just as long as me. You know that the whole country is smoking, okay? The whole Pretty country much. is smoking weed now. Now... Does the music that we make sound better since they smoke some weed? Or, you see, in, in other words, it's a philosophical question. Because the whole country is smoking weed now. Well, does that mean that your customer smokes weed? So you need to understand the music from a weed smoker's perspective. You guys are on the I'll just say you're, you're on, the, on the other end of the table there because you guys went in there stone cold sober and look what y'all came out with. <laughs> exactly. I'll just say that the world that we live in today, you know, when I was, no, when me and you, we're the same age. I was born August 4th, 1958. Okay. We're just four months apart. When we were growing up, we had the choice of three or four or five TV channels to look at. Now you've got hundreds of channels that you can look at. So oh, yeah, for a you person, know, you, you could relate. I remember one we got we got that one UHF channel that had the dance uh, the dance television uh, show on it. Remember, I think it was uh, uh, Soul Is Dick Griffey's Maiden Voice. Interesting. Yeah. So now you have, which is the problem that we have in our society with the type of White House and everything that we have. We have people who, no matter what, and it was, you know, I go to work and 
I know that some of these people treat me with the same respect of anybody else, but they believe everything that that White House said. Mm-hmm. You've got people who, you know, I ain't trying to jump on the R. Kelly thing, but you got people, you know, I mean, wherever there's a lot of smoke, there's some fire. Well, you know what? Let's I've talk about been... the Robin King for a second. Because Trump himself came out too long ago. I think it was even last night or early this morning. I heard all of her about Okay, so he's been indicted. The video tape that we originally had, the person in the video from back some 10, 15 years ago, did not cooperate with uh, law enforcement authorities. For this episode has been provided by Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks. If counting macros makes your head spin, count instead on a snack by Ratio. They've done the math for you, so you can spend less time studying the label and more time enjoying your day. Creamy and delicious, try strawberry and vanilla for two grams of carbs and a unique combination of sugar and protein. Interested? Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks are now available in the yogurt aisle at Walmart. Always consult your physician before starting an eating plan that involves regular consumption of high-fat foods. Support for this episode has been provided by Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks. If counting macros makes your head spin, count instead on a snack by Ratio. They've done the math for you, so you can spend less time studying the label and more time enjoying your day. Creamy and delicious, try strawberry and vanilla for two grams of carbs and a unique combination of sugar and protein. Interested? Ratio Keto-Friendly Dairy Snacks are now available in the yogurt aisle at Walmart. Always consult your physician before starting an eating plan that involves regular consumption of high-fat foods.